Good afternoon and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly dungeon muser today. Uh, today, uh, I am going to actually do a first um, uh, ever uh, Patreon uh, response, I guess, or uh, Patreon requested uh, topic for the podcast. I, I This isn't necessarily a reward that's available for the Patreon uh, or, or on Patreon. It's just one of the patrons had... Uh, uh, actually suggested something or asked a question uh, for a potential podcast topic and uh, I thought it was a pretty good one so I am going to deal with that and then that topic is the reason I stopped running my uh, Barrel Maze campaign using uh, Kevin Crawford's Scarlet Heroes I had a, a modified version of Scarlet Heroes that I was using to uh, to run that and uh, and yeah so that is uh, what I'm going to talk about. And I'll also give a quick update. Now, I am now post-move. I am fully moved into the new place and I've had uh, a chance to run three sessions of uh, our ongoing campaigns uh, since I got back. So let's get to the episode. So the uh, first uh, first topic is the Barrowmies uh, campaign that I was running with uh, Scarlet Hero. So this is uh, taking me quite a bit back. This is, a, a believe... 2018 when we were running the um, initially we started running uh, Barrel Maze, uh, that would be um, Greg Gillespie's awesome uh, Mega Dungeon uh, with uh, the Pathfinder 2nd Edition playtest and that was, I mean it was a shit ton of fun, uh, Pathfinder uh, 2nd Edition is a really good game and the playtest was was a lot of fun as well too but what I I ran into was a uh, situation where the I've described it on this podcast before as ludonarrative dissonance, where the rules that were uh, present in the Pathfinder 2nd Edition rule set were running contrary to the themes of that particular campaign, which was, you know, random encounters and emergent storytelling and, and so forth. Um, I've subsequently recorded an episode uh, talking about how you could potentially, uh, you know, have both of those. You could have your cake and eat it too by just having. Um, making some compromises uh, between the two different uh, um, goals of that campaign to, to run the game as written with uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition and to use the Pathfinder 2nd Edition playtest rules. But in any event, what I did for a time is we switched over to uh, to use uh, Kevin Crawford's uh, Scarlet Heroes uh, for a while. And Scarlet Heroes, uh, for those who aren't familiar, uh, what it's designed to be is effectively... Well, it was a scaled-up version of his... uh, Gosh, I can't remember what the name of the setting was. Red something or other. It was a sort of like uh, pseudo-Asian setting with... um, You know, that uh, that basically used the uh, Labyrinth Lord rules. Uh, Labyrinth Lord is a... Effectively like a, you know... uh, A... OSR version of uh, basic D&D that made a couple small changes to the rule set, including like ascending armor class and things like that. And um, what uh, Scarlet Heroes was, was to play basically like solo play for that. So like any one individual character would, in theory, be about as powerful as four, uh, a party of four for for that thing. So uh, it scaled up some stuff and had this interesting uh, concept called a fray dice, which would, uh, you'd roll that and that would be damage done to other adversaries. You streamlined um, monsters so that instead of having, um, you know, the uh, instead of tracking individual hit points, you just use hit dice. So like some creatures would just go down with one hit, 
you know, and what this allowed you to do is play effectively like kind of more powerful, jazzed up versions of the heroes, um, while also, um, you know, not having to create a whole new rule set. And we went about, uh, I want to say at least half of the total, like 30 something sessions or 40 something sessions that we played with Barrow Maze using that rule set. And it worked pretty well, um, to a point and then I I don't remember precisely why we stopped I'm trying to think what we what we transitioned to after the, what I should have done is gone to the Dungeon Musings uh, YouTube channel and find what, what, what we changed over to I think that what we did is we changed over to uh, a different format that was the beginning of 2019 when I started running a bunch of different ongoing games and we were uh, for Wednesdays and uh Fridays, we were not playing the same game each time. We had different games for a, a while there. So um, it may just have been that we were sort of losing steam on it. We wanted to try some different things. But, I, you know, in retrospect, I'm thinking about the, um, the rule set itself. And uh, I can tell you that the, uh, you know, some of the rules that uh, uh, we use for it, I... I I guess uh, the, the reason we started using those in the, in the out from the outset was because we found that that was a bad, that Pathfinder Second was a bad fit. And I thought that this one might be a way to maintain that sort of heroic level play that we were seeing with Pathfinder without having to, you know, go with a different set. And part of the problems I found were um, we were using a rotating cast with, uh, with that particular campaign. So we were seeing different people play each time. And what the consequence of that was was the way that the the XP worked in uh, uh, in uh, Scarred Heroes and was very similar to how it worked in or rather I'm, actually I don't know if this is how it works in, in Scarred Heroes I, I was running it uh, I was running it using the XP chart from um, another of Kevin Crawford's games uh, Revised Stars Without Number which is the same XP chart that they use in Godbound now what the reason I wanted to use that stuff was because the way the um, experience was sort of modeled out in, uh, or you gained experience in those games, was you gained quite a bit at first, and then it slowly kind of tapered out over time. But it didn't take you that long if you were playing on a, as frequently as we were playing those games to really see characters um, gain levels a little too, not too quickly, but like pretty darn quickly. Like they would just blow through. Uh, levels fairly quickly you'd have a level disparity and that wasn't terrible I guess for that game it wasn't as bad as like in Pathfinder 2 where there's a, like level differences are, are felt pretty keenly because you um, you know the math uh, underlying the game were, makes such uh, massive distingu- uh, distinctions between the different levels so you know the uh, it wasn't that that bad but uh, I think that ultimately, the way that uh, the, the game handles the, or the way I, I, I put together the house rules, um, there were ways to sort to customize your character in that, the same way that there were in uh, Pathfinder 2nd, and these were similar to uh, how things work in uh, Revised Stars Without Number with talents, which are kind of like feats in other games, if you, if you are more familiar with like D&D or uh, Pathfinder, and the rule set was okay, um, but there's a couple things I discovered. Uh, one of the things that sort of 
dampened my enthusiasm is that Kevin Crawford actually hasn't released his rule set as a part of the open game license. And to be honest, I have no fucking idea how he's managed to do that because it's clearly based on Roll20 or like D20 stuff. Um, but in any event, uh, he has not, which means that you it's not part of the D20 license or, or open game license, which means that you really can't make use of the stuff in creating your own. So I was really leery of, like, I, I created the, the house rules without really recognizing that. But as soon as I did, I was like, oh, shit. Like, I don't really want to get a cease and desist from him uh, after putting a bunch of work into this. Um, and I kind of, at the time, was really more interested in, in uh, I, I, you know, I was very relatively new to the uh, OSR, and I was excited about all the different things that were being created by different creators. So I wanted to throw my hat in the ring with my own uh, kind of stuff. And... Um, then I realized I couldn't make use of any of Crawford's material, although I think that's questionable because if his stuff arguably really should be subject to the uh, open game license, uh, then whether he says it, it is or not, I think that yeah, the implication is is that the it would be subject to that, which means you could make use of it. But that's neither here nor there as a day job problem, and I don't really want to, you know, that's it's just not a problem I wanted to to deal with. The other thing is, is the game, uh, or at least those high-powered rules, they, they're very attractive at first, but I found that they were so abstracted that it felt a little, um, you know, when everything has effectively one hit point, it's, it's the same for low-level things. It's the same kind of, um, not, I mean, I want to say problem, but it's the same issue that I, I saw with, D and D fourth sometimes where the abstraction that is inherent in the in the game mechanics, you know, like as both that and uh, fourth edition have to do some use game mechanics to abstract certain, you know, certain things, uh, certain things like, um, uh, gosh, like you know minions, you know, which are uh, the sort of stormtrooper effect uh, for D and D fourth. That was a concession to drama, so you could have these massive fights with big numbers of, of adversaries on the board without bogging your game down because these minions would drop if you looked at them funny. And the um, similarly, the uh, the rules for uh, Stars Without Number, or rather uh, for Scarlet Heroes, they had the net effect of that as well too. They had this sort of like Stormtrooper effect. But the trouble is when you do that, you can kind of lose some of the granularity. Uh, well, not you can, you do. You absolutely lose some of the granularity. And what you let and end up with is something that isn't quite as, I don't know, it feels very, very gamist. And that was one of the problems I found with it was just we were so in the game mind. Um, I, I just, I wanted something that was a little more, uh, a little different uh, from that. I, I wanted something that was a little less just abstractly gamist. And I think the added problem was because things would go down so quickly, because things would die so quickly. And part of this could be because the characters were at a level where they were blowing through the the challenges that were in the Baramese. It really wasn't a it wasn't as challenging as what I think it should have been. So um while the the house rules, I was happy with the way they came together, for those reasons, like for one, it's it, it kind of soured. Um, my, my interest in, in hacking the, that system further was a little soured by the fact that uh, it wasn't quite clear whether 
you know, um, it was, uh, you know, I would get a cease and desist in respect to those things. I mean, I'm, I'm not really super concerned. There's no, I wasn't distributing it for profit or anything like that. But I mean, you know, if I wanted to um, even just to throw them on a drive through uh, at some point, I, I didn't want to have to deal with the issue of his, um, you know, of his stuff not being released. And again, it, it bought, it, you know, it is clearly the game is based on uh, a, the deep, the OGL material. So I just, I, it baffles me that it, uh, it isn't required to, to lease that. I, I, maybe it's that they're just not paying attention or that he's done very, very careful. His work is very careful and very precise. So, I mean, it could very well be that he's found a, a loophole in the, uh, in the material, but in any event, I, um, I just really did not want to, uh, to run the risk of, uh, of having that. So there was that, um, there was the fact that the game felt like a very, o- like OSR sort of streamlined version of, um, uh, of fourth edition, uh, by the end of it. Um, and not to the point that where it was really hyper tactical necessarily, just the level of gamist abstraction that was involved with it. Um, if you're familiar with fourth edition D and D, I mean, obviously the tactical tabletop play was a really massive part of that. It was part of the both strength and weakness of, of that particular game. Um, the complexity of, of fourth edition obviously was much higher than what this old school one was, but because of the level of uh, necessary gamist abstraction in that game, it just um, it, it sort of lost its luster uh, for me. And, and at a certain point, I was looking for something that was was different. So, and then that also combined just with the fact that we were you know looking to play something different at the time. I need to go back and take a look and see what I was running during that time as well, because I feel like. Maybe there was another another game that came out that I was really keen on running, or it could have been around the time when I ran my gaming marathon for that year. And often I find a, you know, the the uh, when I do have the gaming marathon, the drive back home, the drive back to you know, drive back to my hometown, and the drive back home from the hometown, uh, that often gives me an opportunity to think about other games that I'm either not running or have not run or whatever. So um, I would have to uh, take a look at that as well and see if there's if that had some effect on things. Um, it was just like, I mean, to be honest, it's if you're looking for something that is more of a uh, heroic scale play with an old school uh, feel to it, you know, if you want your heroes to feel um, really, you know, like badass heroes carving their way through hordes of goblins and stuff like that, it's a solid game, especially if you're running a something that is set in uh, like basic D&D in that kind of setting. And I think that the other thing uh, is is in the time since then, I have been running a lot of other old school games with a different way of mitigating the lethality and in, and providing a little more like you know power fantasy uh, style play with the heroes by way of my like astonishing fortune uh, that I use in a couple of different games, which is a narr- narr- uh, narrative meta currency that can be used to affect dice outcomes to, to, you know, survive what would be, uh, lethal, um, you know, circumstances or, or things like that. Or like if you get poisoned or you lose too many hit points or whatever, I have different ways to sort of move in that direction that I prefer to the, uh, the sort of abstraction gamist approach that, uh, Scarlet Heroes takes. Um, I've talked previously in the podcast as to why I, you know, I decided to move away from uh, Barrow Maze instead and run Night Below, uh, and I don't, I don't regret that for a second. It's been fuck, it's been fun running Night Below, as uh, regular listeners will will know. Um, 
but it um, that didn't play a role one way or the other in um, you know in whether in my decision to to not run that any longer. It was it really was just uh, came down to I I think that we changed interest and, and decided to just play something different. But um, in any event, um, that is I hope, I hope that answers your question. And then then also as well too, I will. Uh, I'm going to flip you an email as well too, and we'll send you my rules. I I've since changed computers, so I'm hoping that I've got those rules sitting somewhere in an email or something like that. And I think I do. And assuming that I am able to find that, I will uh, I'll get that for you and uh, and send that your way. But um, anyway, that is uh, the reason for leaving behind my uh, custom Scarlet Heroes rules. All right, so the next thing I gotta talk about is the state of the union for our uh, various games. So we've had uh, three games uh, this past weekend, uh, all of which in the new um, in seven hundred meters. Uh, all of which are in the new uh, recording studio or the uh, a new office, and the uh, they were one session of our Night Below uh, campaign and two sessions of our Icewind Dale uh, campaign. And the, uh, yeah, I mean, like, they, they were all really good sessions, you know, we had, my apologies for the background noise, I, uh, I'm currently driving around, <laughs> forgive me, I've been, uh, had to drop off some keys for my son in the middle of, uh, a job, he's working in rural Alberta, and it's just, uh, it is very remote and lots of range roads I've had to navigate down, um, on the plus side, I have a, a terrific idea for a future uh, champions uh, scenario now because, boy, oh boy, did we, uh, one of these towns is just, um, it, it, there's this little development in the middle of nowhere. And uh, what it reminds me of is, uh, honestly, the if you're familiar with the old uh, G.I. Joe comics, um, the there was a kind of like a, you know, every town called Springfield that uh, the Crimson Guardsmen uh, and Cobra use as a front, and they just seem to be, you know, kind of in the middle of nowhere, happy community. That's really what <laughs> the community my son is in is a place called Harmony, and uh, it, uh, boy, it really reminded me of that, and I think it would be a terrific front for uh, Viper, for the uh, Champions analog for Hydra. Anyway, um, so that is... Um, uh, that's not what I was uh, uh, talking about, though. What I was talking about was the success or the uh, last couple of sessions we've had uh, of uh, AD and D. So, uh, as I said last time, like in the for, to facilitate um, opportunities for more people to play, uh, I made the switch to Advanced Dungeons and Dragons uh, for our weekend games, apart from Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer's Hyperborea. And what we have. Um, seen in the last week, uh, so the Night Below campaign, uh, or the Night Below session saw the guys, uh, let's see here, this was the, the kind of the fallout from our previous session, which was the sort of their first big boss fight at the end of the last sort of, not epic, but like the first arc of the campaign, and man, what a, what a fight, holy smokes. Uh, and then the last uh the last fight we had, or the last session, I should say, was uh, it saw one more uh, combat, one more fight, uh, where the the heroes uh, face this sort of like mud creature, uh, and 
than our mud and, mud and rock creature. And uh, and then it was sort of, they finally had uh, completed, I guess, or turned their, grabbed all their treasure and then started making their way back to uh, towards um, kind of civilization, you know. Uh, there is, um, yeah, so this has kind of been the culmination of about 20 sessions of play. So it's been a really satisfying uh, wrap-up for the first kind of arc of the campaign. We've got a lot of characters who are either uh, third, or between second and uh I think that well after they train, uh, they will be between third and fourth level, which is uh, it's pretty exciting. And then uh, our heroes will be spending. I, I, to be honest, I don't I don't even know what they'll do next, but they've got some interesting leads here uh, to explore, and I'm curious to see once they get all the training done what they'll be doing. Um, they're also at the point right now where it is the fall, and uh, they've been. So, you know, this, this particular campaign, you may recall, uh, or regular listeners may recall, that I have been making use of the calendar uh, in this one. And the re- the advantage of doing that and also of using the, the training time has been that we've had about three or four months of time pass in the span of the, you know, f- uh, what is it? It's about five months we've been playing this now. Uh, so it's pretty cool. Like it, It's... Um, it's neat seeing that how much time is organically passing in the campaign as the guys travel and train and whatnot, uh, in comparison to real life, you know, like the, the, uh, suggestion from the, uh, fifth edition, uh, uh, product from, uh, Cold Press, the, uh, Midgard world book, their suggestion for, for letting time pass is for between adventures for as much time to pass as, does in real life, and I kind of like that. I think that what it means is you cannot take advantage of the, you know, of the downtime rules, those substantial downtime rules that are in, um, what do you call it, uh, Xanthar's Guide to Everything, or at least I don't think that though that uh, that house rule was contemplated with the use of those rules. So I don't know how well those are two those would interface. I don't run nearly enough fifth uh, edition to be able to make a, a judgment call one way or the other on that. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's been a, uh, a pretty, pretty cool, uh, first arc to the campaign, you know? I mean, the, it's really interesting seeing where, uh, where we've ended up here. Um, and I just, yeah, I, I am enormously, uh, gr- uh, glad that we made the switch over to, uh, Night Below. It's, it really has, um, you know, kind of played out. Uh, with the promise that the game had, which is to say that it would be good for rotating cast. It's good for, um, yeah, I don't have to think about XP. I, I can really focus on the game and, and loot and things like that. And uh, one thing I am having to be mindful of, though, because I'm making some changes to the to the campaign, uh, you know, like our, uh, I've mentioned before in the podcast that the, um, the uh, whole goblin encounter in uh, the Night Below campaign as written was um, was never really, uh, you know, designed to be this really substantive thing. It was really a matter of, like, it would it should have been done in about one session. Um, and that, that's a perfectly fine way. I just, I didn't, with the way, I guess, you know, now that we're through that part of the campaign, I, I can talk about sort of the design decisions I made uh, in it and also the, um, the reason I made a, a very different presentation from the night below. So, spoilers for the actual night below campaign and for 
our playthrough of it as well. So if you you don't want to be spoiled in this, maybe skip forward about five minutes. Oh, and you know what I'll do is I will end this segment uh, after I talk about this. So just skip on to the next segment. Um, but the the way that the Night Below is designed in the campaign is in this kind of 90s way that, you know, in the 90s what um, in one it seemed... Um, what we saw a lot of was, you know, an effort to try and present uh, adversaries with a little more depth and a little more complexity, and and to be honest, I mean, a little more of a sympathetic light. And that's what they did with these goblins. They, you know, the, Carl Sargent is the author of the of uh, Night Below, and the way he presented it in the uh, in the adventure is that these are very sympathetic, kind of. They don't want to fight. They don't raid, you know, kind of uh, uh, goblins. And I, I had intended to, to run it that way. And then once we, once the players, it became clear how the players were reacting to the to goblins in general. One of them is a, uh, a gnome with a, like a racial hatred of uh, um, goblins. And uh, one of them is playing a dwarf with a racial hatred of goblins. And I, uh, the way that the players were playing their characters was really, like, there's no way that, uh, the goblins would even have had a chance to talk. Like, I tried to get some of that, uh, or I gave the opportunity for some of that to come out in, um, in the, their first encounter with the goblin to sort of set the, the stage for what's going on, but they were, the players were having none of it. They were, you know, uh, seeing them strictly as, as adversaries and as threats. So, you know, like there was very little value in uh, in trying to run that. What they would have done is gone in and murdered everyone, and then the story that sort of uh, Carl Sargent had in mind would never have played out. So I decided to take cue, take my cues from the players, and uh, figure out a way to, to present the goblins as being the you know the monsters they thought they were. You know, and um, and I mean I think that there may be more secrets to be revealed over time. There may be more that's been going on in there than has come out in the campaign. And I know that some of my players are listeners of the podcast, so I'm not going to spoil that. But what I can say now is that, so the whole um, whole region of uh, Heathertop, Heather, the whole fortress itself, uh, I actually took from uh, the Pathfinder's Rise of the Rune Lords uh, campaign. The first adventure is called um, Burnt Offerings, and it has a fortress in it or like a, uh, the first sort of like big dungeon you uh, you go through is a place called Thistletop and that's where obviously I got Heathertop from there was a lot of heather in this region so rather than using the existing map though I redrew it I knew I wanted to make some changes because there were certain things in the original um, in the original map that I didn't want or at least the, the things that were populating it that I didn't want to, to be there and as I was getting a better feel for what AD&D was like and what it required, and I was able to adapt a lot of the magic items and things like that. But I did try, and also I had to, you know, rejig a lot of the encounters. Um, but I did try to, you know, use as much of that as a as a cue as possible. Now, not necessarily because I needed to be, you know, remain slavishly true to, uh, you know, to the Rise of the Rune Lords uh, setup. Um, I, it was more that I kind of enjoyed the challenge of like, okay, what's how am I going to translate this into the current thing? And, you know, over the course of as the campaign played out, we I found more and more interesting opportunities to tie in this idea of dogs. And um, the in 
Rise of the Rune Lords the, uh, in the in the Pathfinder version of the uh, of the dungeon, the last thing you fight is uh, like the boss fight is a uh, bargast, and a bargast is basically like a it's a demon that can change shape uh, to look like a goblin or it can look like kind of a weird uh, wolf type thing or dog type thing, and it can look like something in between as well. This hybrid between the two, kind of to be honest, the way they illustrate it, it kind of looks like a a bugbear, but a little more uh, monstrous and, and furry and here suit. Um, but the, uh, what I decided to do is, you know, I mean, I, I, I always prefer to not just tell the names of the monsters they're fighting because it's more fun presenting them in a, in, you know, in an in kind of universe kind of way and have them try and figure out. And I, I always love trying to give new names. I mean, things like goblins and orcs and stuff like that, obviously those are not necessarily going to be the same. Uh, but, um, in the, in the Pathfinder version of the of the adventure, there's also a lot of um, there's a well, I mean, there's a lot. Relatively speaking, there's a lot of dogs in that particular encounter, either goblin dogs or uh, or, or other kinds of dogs. Things that became terror hounds in, in my campaign or my version of uh, of Heathertop, and it was just a nice kind of you know we we ended up rolling quite a few random encounters about the the dogs, uh, so I sort of played that up with the idea that. You know, um, as this uh, bargast, which is both goblin and and uh, you know element or aspects of goblin and aspects of dog, as it was getting ready to get free, it would call to both goblins and dogs and try and you know try and to, to bring those things in. And as it got um, closer to getting free altogether, uh, the more powerful that pull was, and that led to sort of how I, I decided to protect the. You know, that led me to the backstory behind this thing naturally, and it linked in quite well with some ideas that I had for later in in Night Below itself. Um, it gave me an opportunity to present a kind of a challenging tactical scenario for the players uh, with relatively low stakes because the goblins were not really they weren't super powerful when the characters were at like first or second level. Yeah, the goblins were particularly scary, but really only more, mostly at first level. Um, and yeah, as the characters you know went along in um, in the throughout the dungeon, we I, I repurposed in the uh, Pathfinder game the or version of uh, Burnt Offerings. The temple is dedicated to one of the rune lords. Hence the rise of the rune lords, you know, thing. But it was dedicated to one of the rune lords, which is this like ancient, powerful, magical uh, sorcerer or a group of sorcerers who used to run this kingdom, which I think was called Thassalon. Um, but anyway, the uh, in mine, I didn't want that. I, I decided to, you know, dedicate it to being this elven thing or reskin it as this elven outpost and. You know, it's it really, really worked out well. Like, there's a lot of happy coincidences in the elements of design for the the dungeon uh, from beforehand. Um, it provided a good foundation on which I could build my, you know, my own story to to suit the uh, the campaign. Plus, it gave a really good map. Like it's it's a cool dungeon with lots of different options to it, and or uh, at least some different and some interesting architecture in it. Um, without being overly complex and it, it was easy to try and find reasons for each you know uh, structure uh, to have meaning or have purpose to it which was which was pretty cool you know um, 
uh, overall, like it, um, yeah, it, I think it, it worked really, really well as a, uh, a reskin dungeon. Yeah. And I would definitely, definitely, definitely do that again. You know, I would absolutely, uh, take advantage of, cause I mean, even if I don't run, um, Pathfinder first very often, which is to say like maybe once a year, uh, over the last couple of years. And, I, I may not want to run Adventure Paths. There is tons of great material to steal from there. You know, like there's uh, terrific maps, uh, excellent story ideas, great NPCs, fantastic art. So tons of great things you can use to steal for your own campaign. So, you know, um, and the nice thing is, is with uh, uh, less so with some of the newer or the newest versions of Pathfinder, but you know, if you are running an old school game, uh, if you do have access to a lot of the the la- latter, you know, like l- the ones released in the '90s, the latter uh, part of the game's life cycle, the monstrous compendiums, you'll find a lot of monsters that uh, became signature monsters or very popular monsters in Third that were only introduced in uh, late life cycle of AD and D Second. Uh, like I, you know, I didn't own the uh, a lot of those monstrous compendiums back in the day. I was kind of out of uh, AD and D by the time that the late '90s rolled around, or mid to late '90s. I was onto something else. But there's a lot of monsters that I thought were introduced in Third uh, that turns out were there. And the reason I, I mention that is because Pathfinder is built on the core of that Third Edition approach and ethos. There's a lot of monsters in Pathfinder that are those late things that were introduced in the late uh, cycle of AD and D second, uh, which means that it's really easy to reskin a lot of stuff for, from one to the other, you know? So plus because of the simulationist approach to AD and D and the lack of like balance and things like that, you don't really need to worry as much about getting the balance right for the combat encounters or, or combat stats. So it's very, very easy to just reskin stuff. Um, you know, directly from one to the other, you do need to make some substantial changes. Like I, I dramatically increase the number of goblins to be found in the, in the fortress, but that's the kind of thing that, um, you can very easily, I, I find with, uh, AD and D second very easily, at least at lower levels. I mean, maybe things will get a little more complicated as I get, uh, into higher levels, but you know, when is that not true of any game? So, um, so overall, I'm really pleased with, uh, the fact that our heroes are on their way back to, um, uh, Harleton. I expect that the players will be uh, engaging in some training uh, to get some new levels, get some new hit points, learn some new proficiencies in some cases, uh, pick up some new potions, and then figure out what they're going to do next. You know, it's going to be pretty exciting. So that's kind of state of uh, the night below. Maybe I'll, I'll, to avoid, or to make it easy to avoid spoilers, I'm going to end this segment here, and I'll start the next uh, segment to talk about uh, Icewind Dale, or the Legacy of the Crystal Shark. Okay, so that's where things are with uh, the night below. Let's talk about um, Legacy of the Crystal Shard. So we had two sessions of Legacy of the Crystal Shard that were uh, carrying on from where we had last left our heroes, which is to say having faced a massive uh, undead in a big complex. Um, This one we saw the heroes return to sort of the dwarven home base to recuperate and kind of, you know, uh, figure out what a a different approach because... Uh, they were finding that the you know they were likely to get themselves killed if they were going to continue on in the way they were going. So uh, they talked a bit to their you know their patron the the big um, uh, 
uh, the Dane, the, the r- ruler of the community in the Dwarven Valley in the Icewind Dale. And the what they decided is to try and make their way down to the Nexus in the Dwarven Mines. When the Nexus is uh, was a, a place where the basically all currently operating mines would branch from. So it's like a you know a clear point where from there they they go out uh, the, or the active uh, mine shafts or the exploratory shafts are being uh, dug and then um, yeah and then from there uh, the the you know the heroes hopefully would be able to track the uh, the whatever the, this necromancer they think is behind the undead threat and. Um, uh, so the first session was uh, that they went went back. They talked a bit. They re uh, restore or restocked on some things like arrows and sling bullets and, and things like that. Um, they got a you know good night's sleep to recover their spells, and then they they headed off in uh, back into the um, you know to the mines. And they we had one. Uh, that first session ended, or the last half of that first session was a running fight through this kind of area that was a transition between the um, the mines and then the community, because the whole community itself was basically like as the uh, they worked out the mines, they would convert the dwarves would build would convert over those old uh, mines into a. Uh, into a community, into a community halls, you know, uh, and the um, what the heroes did is fought this big uh, fight in one of those uh, converted. It was still in the process of being converted from a mine to a community, but you know they had a, a, a this interesting architecture where there was different levels, and you know we got a bit not quite the same thing, but we got a little bit of that uh, kind of Kazad Doom, you know, running battle kind of feel to it, which was kind of cool. Um, and we had our second, uh, near death from a hero. We had to have, in as many weeks, we've had to have two heroes spend a point of astonishing fortune, the uh, narrative meta currency that I use in those campaigns to prevent his character, the character from dying. And three and a half And the, um, yeah. And then the second session was a care follow up from that with our heroes, uh, finally making it to the Nexus. Uh, we we saw the heroes get to, you know, enter some actual dwarven mines, and I did an okay job of presenting the uh, the actual physical dimensions of the, you know, of where they were tra- uh, following, because the way that the, uh, the way that it was described in, in the adventure is that it's, you know, it's, it's mines that are uh, set for the, you know, for the dwarves. Uh, so it, it's basically about like f- maybe ju- like five foot nine or five foot seven, um, and that's it. Uh, because the dwarves don't really tend to be much taller than five feet, I, I think. Um, so, you know, the what I was describing is the characters all hunching over. We actually had none of our dwarf, and uh, actually we only have one dwarf in that party. But the one dwarf didn't make the session, so the human characters were all hunched over and having a fight against these uh, undead creatures by being hunched over and, and whatnot. And it was just, um, yeah, it, we, we had one fight that was like that. And I wish I had done a little bit of a better job of presenting that and describing, you know, the challenges of fighting in that way. Um, but 
and in particular, like the what the only thing I uh, the only thing I I decided to do was to add in a you know um, a modifier to my penalty to hit uh, minus one to hit for it, and that that didn't really. I wish I thought of something else to you know to really reinforce the the challenges of fighting in that in that environment. Um, but I also wanted to balance that with not making it so brutal to fight in there that the characters were effectively, you know, um, not able to, to fight effectively. You know, I've, um, I had one time, uh, years ago where I, I'm a regular viewer, listeners of the podcast, they done right. uh, sorry, regular listeners of the podcast will know my long time affinity for Battletech, uh, the tabletop role-playing game or tabletop miniature game for playing giant robot combat. And I have, uh, <laughs> one legendarily bad uh, session of that where I had set such insanely difficult penalties to hit that it was just uh, it, it was a terrible, terrible game because of the amount of environmental factors I included. So I've been always since then a little a little leery of, of including too many environmental factors and uh, you know, so you want to have enough uh, situational modifiers to make for a flavorful encounter but you know, want to make it... meters. Uh, but I don't want to have it be uh, so, you know, crippling as to make it uh, just a frustrating uh, endeavor where you're really just hoping to roll, you know, uh, 19s or 20s just to try and get a hit. So, uh, so yeah, so I mean, I, I think I could have done a better job of that, but uh, just to make it feel a little more immersive. But, you know, uh, you live and learn, and next time I'll make sure to do a better job of that. So anyway, I... I uh, I feel like I could have done that better, but one thing I do really, I really like about running uh, AD&D Second is how, just how many things you can have. It, it's one of the reasons why I love Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer's Hyperborea as well, is just the ability to have so many damn things on the table at once and, and not have to have the players defeat everything. You know, I, I love that um, I don't have to abstract anything or you know, um, I don't know. It's just, there's no gamist element. It's really just, that's how many you've got there. So, and I feel that it engenders more, I don't know, like intuitive or more like, you know, quote, realistic and quote, uh, tactics on the part of the players, like things that, that would intuitively make sense as being an advantageous thing in real life that is easily translatable into the, the, uh, you know, the mechanics of the game. So it's really pretty cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, and you know, and one thing that I, I, I really, really like about uh, the the game as well is, I feel like you know you can, um, you can sort of hide the actual numbers of adversaries that the, the players are facing behind certain things. Like, um, one of them is through, you know, um, the uh, missile weapon uh, volleys. Uh, because players are, are often have the opportunity to like you know to loose a, a few volleys of uh, missile weapons on the on their adversaries before they ever you know uh, before they ever uh, get into melee range um, you, you can uh, count basically if you were to really labor over the the numbers you can assume that some of those uh, adversaries are going to be down by virtue of the, um, uh, the ranged attacks from the, uh, players. So that's gonna, that means the actual number of things they'll be facing in, in melee are not as high as, as what, uh, uh, you'd think. And secondly, the, 
uh, morale mechanic, uh, particularly if it's like cowardly things like goblins or, you know, kobolds or things like that. It, it that also hides the real number of things they actually have to face before the things are driven off. And I love that. I, I think it's just, it gives a more, uh, it certainly, I think gives a more satisfying, uh, feel to the, uh, to the overall, um, you know, uh, the, I guess like the, the character of the fight instead of being, you know, a, a thing where it's just a few, you know, three or four uh, adversaries or an equal number. Because in a lot of modern games, in order to maintain game balance, you kind of need to, if it is going to be a slugfest, like a real, you know, fight, um, you need to kind of keep them at about parity. And I I just love that the, in this um, other version, in, in this in this version, I don't have to do that. Like, the players can really face uh, some pretty uh, substantial uh, threats you know, and the number of, uh, of adversaries they can face are so much greater. Uh, so it just, it feels like they're triumphing over, triumph, triumphing? Um, yeah, over a dramatically larger number of adversaries than what the, you know, the quote actual fight is, is going to consist of. It's just super cool. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, I mean the, uh, and I think it keeps the stakes high as well too, you know, by, uh, because, uh, if those two assumptions, if the uh, the range attacks don't work out properly, or if the um, if the morale doesn't break, then that fight gets a lot harder than uh, you know than what it could be, and that's cool. I mean, they just it's it, it also lends the element of danger and really reinforces the danger of that uh, that whole type of encounter. So, anyway. Um, so I think that's that's where things are. Like I just the the night below campaign is going very very well. Or night below is going really well so far. Really looking forward to seeing where the guys go with it next. And the legacy of the crystal shard one is likewise going really well. I'm going to talk about the modifications that I made to legacy of the crystal shard at a later date, uh, just because the um, it's not right now. It's not necessary uh, for me to to go into that. Um, well, I, I'm not something that's very. I don't. I don't think it's appropriate for me to go into that just yet. I, I want the, uh, um, I want the, the heroes to have, um, to to not be surprised. Again, the people who are playing in the game, a lot of them listen to the podcast, so I, I don't necessarily want to spoil those for them. But I will talk about that because it's a neat campaign in the sense that it really is a very bare bones um, thing. Like you're not um, you're not provided with specific. You are provided with some encounters, like uh, some specific encounters, but it's not like, you know, the, um, it's not like a, a Pathfinder or modern uh, D&D thing where like specific numbers are offered. Like it, a lot of it is left to the DM to design themselves, which is, is pretty awesome. And I guess was necessary given the fact that it was released for a bunch of different editions. But in any event, so that's where things stand for Legacy of the Crystal Shard. And I think that makes for an episode. Um, as always, I think, uh, if you have any uh, comments, questions, or concerns regarding this episode, please do not hesitate to uh, shoot me a voice message on uh, Anchor. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter at Dungeon Musings. You can reach me by email. My email address is dungeonmusings at gmail.com. And you can, of course, uh, join us on the Dungeon Musings Discord server, which you can find on any of our recent episodes of the uh, Dungeon Musings uh, or on 
the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel. You can find links in the description of those videos to the Dungeon Musings Discord server. Um, otherwise, uh, thank you so much for uh, listening. I hope that this finds you healthy, safe, and weathering the current crisis as well as can be expected. And until I speak to you again, happy gaming.